Exodus. You may be seated. Pray together. Father, we come as we open your words, as always, Lord, looking for you to put our minds in focus. We, we thank you for the worship that has guided our thinking to, to come to the point of, of sharing in your word together. And we ask through your Holy Spirit you would touch each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 this morning. And uh, in the way of introduction, uh, Jesus, by this time, is already at odds with the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, prior to all of this, he had cleansed the temple, he had done other things and situations. And, and so, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were at the time that Jesus was teaching, they were the authorities on the, the law, on the Word of God, on keeping the law, and uh, they were always talking and debating, uh, either at the, if they were in Jerusalem and the temple arcade uh, colonnades and, and on the steps of the temple at the gates of their cities and synagogues. Uh, they were always talking and debating, you know, what's the most important commandment? Uh, and for that matter, what's the least important commandment? And for times when they would come to self-examination, they would basically come to that point where they would say, well, the most important example, uh, commandments are the ones I've been able to keep, and the least important are, are, are the ones that I haven't been able to keep. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jesus is, in this passage that we're going to read, addresses this attitude, and uh, so we're going to take a, a look at it this morning. Starting with the 17th verse. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless you're righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. If he hadn't made them angry up to this point, he certainly would have of that statement. Um, some, uh, it's interesting, some people say, say would, or would think this would be out of character for Jesus to be so blunt and direct, but his concern, and, and, and you see it through Paul's writings too, is that anybody that is teaching people what the Word of God says is, is to be accountable for God in a, in, a, in a way that puts more accountability, more responsibility on you. And if you're leading people astray, woe unto you in a sense that, uh, especially if you're making light of, uh, of, of or, or reducing in any way the intent of God's word to to bend it to meet your own ideas or or, or feelings or or situations. So uh, he addresses this attitude. Uh, there's a point in uh, later on in Matthew chapter 23 where he it's called the the seven woes to the to the Pharisees and he really takes issue with them at that point. Uh, 
and so uh, this is where Jesus is in the sense of coming to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, basically early still in his ministry, setting the stage for what it is to, to, that he's going to be teaching. And uh, uh, I, I thought that, you know, it's important to understand, you know, what did Jesus, when the, when the Pharisees, you know, like I said, they were debating this all the time, uh, the scribes, others, the groups, uh, you know, talking about it. They thought they would corner Jesus. You might recall the time that he had three questions were asked of him. And the third question, the Pharisees said, hey, everybody else has not been able to get through and make him look embarrassed. Uh, let's ask him the question of questions. What's the greatest commandment? Now, that was an, you know, depends on who you talk to, really. Uh, talk about situation ethics. And it was uh, a matter of debate. And yet Jesus turned around and quoted the obvious answer out of Deuteronomy, and that's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all, you know, with all your strength. And the idea is, is that as you do that, then to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he makes it a very clear statement that he says, this is the essence of the law. I'm, it's a paraphrase, but that, that's it. You know, this is the essence of the law, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to treat each other and love each other. Uh, and in the, as you look at that, you realize that uh, if you look at the Ten Commandments, I know I've said this many times, but if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four are your relationship with God. The next six are your relationship with each other. And so Jesus is making you know, this, this point even here. The scribes and the Pharisees uh, are prone to doing things that are inconsistent with, with good teaching in the sense of the Word of God. And one of the things that Jesus was going to be accused of, maybe had already been accused of, was you're teaching against the law, or you're not teaching the law of Moses, or you're you're coming. So he starts out here: Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish the law. And the word abolish here is to destroy, to overthrow, to put down, to counter in some way, to make less of. He says, I haven't come to make anything less of the law or to change the law. In fact, if anything, I have come to make the law clear and, and, and complete in, in my teaching as well as what he would do in reference to fulfilling the law. So, to fulfill the law here where he says I've come to fulfill it is, is the idea of to complete it, to satisfy it, to make it whole. And he says, not one iota, which is the, the smallest letter in the, in the Jewish uh, uh, Hebrew alphabet, and, and, or a dot. And I don't know if you've ever looked at Hebrew. I can't read Hebrew. Uh, and even though my brain tends to work from, from the, the wrong side of the page like they write, uh, well, I guess from their point, it's the right side of the page. Well, it is the right side of the page. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, the idea of, of, of the little dots and stuff that are over the letters and stuff change the intent of those letters and sometimes the meaning of the word. So he says, not, a, not the smallest letter, the iota, or even a dot or, or little line over the letter. Nothing is going to change. I'm not changing anything that God has laid down. Now think about this. If we are holding to the Scriptures that says that God has breathed this, that through the Holy Spirit, 
with the you know coming into and working with the writers, bringing out the word of God. God breathed the word of God. Then it, doesn't it make sense that nothing would change? That if anything, Jesus would clarify, make it clear. Jesus said, "I you know he came to make the Father clear. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." And uh, it says that he's the only one that has behold the Father, and he has come to make him understood. So. This is where Jesus is coming from. He's not here to abolish the law, change the law. He's here to make it clear, to complete it, to fulfill it. Nothing in the law is going to change. Now, when it says that nothing is going to change, it doesn't mean that all of the things that the law requires in the sense of sacrifice, these type of things are going to continue because he will be the answer to those things. But does there still need to be, and and I'm putting it only in this for a moment, does there still, in, in a sense, because man sinned, there still has to be a sacrifice for man. The thing is, is that Jesus, and we go into Hebrews to get this, but Jesus is the once and for all final sacrifice. So it's been completed in him. So the idea is, is that while we don't, we don't do every exact thing the way it was, the law is still the mind of God. It still reveals his holiness. It still reveals his wrath against sin and the fact that there's a judgment and the fact that man needs a Savior. In fact, that was the point of the law according to what Paul writes. You get into Galatians chapter 3 and, and Paul makes it very clear that the law was here to instruct us, to tutor us, to be a schoolmaster. It was to show us the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and that man needs God's intervention for his salvation and a relationship with him. And ultimately pointing all from the very beginning all the way through to Christ. Clear back into to, to Genesis chapter 3, the seed of woman being bruised on the heel but crushing the head of Satan. The very the, a picture of Christ. The seed, singular, of Abraham a picture of Christ, all the way through, over and over and over again, pointing that there will be a point in time where all these promises, all these things kind of come together in one place, one point, one time. And at an exact, according to Paul in Galatians, exact perfect time. It's always exciting for me to just even say that because of you knowing that God is never late. Have you ever had that feeling where he's, you know, when are you going to do something, Lord? Or we might even be saying, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Uh, how many times since I've been a Christian, since the, the mid-70s, have there been predictions of, of, we must, some actually predicting in times, which I think is inappropriate, but others just making the statement of, that we must be in end times. Look what's going on. The, 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 the war in, in, in Israel in the 60s, you know, the time is, you know, is done. I remember a news, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but remember a, a Christian newspaper coming out showing uh, the, the graves open and the rapture and all this kind of stuff, trying to get people's attention. But the reality is, is that, that we have this, this picture of, of the law is there to reveal to us the teaching, the teaching us that we need a Savior. And then Jesus goes on in verse 19 to, to, to tell us very clearly again, anyone who, and, and the English Standard Version says, relax one of the least of these commandments. 
in other words, one of the smallest commandments that might seem insignificant in some way to you, anybody that comes to release, relax that is, is failing to do their job, basically. And what he means here by the idea of relaxing is to loosen or to make less important or to weaken in some way its integrity. And again, as these men would debate, uh, you know, is adultery the worst law or murder the worst law? Uh, is this, you know, uh, it, you know, even getting down to the lesser laws and, and, and meaning that they, they weren't, they, the Ten Commandments are a reflection of the, well, the Ten Commandments is like a, a, a table of contents to the rest of the law. And, and, you know, so a lesser law might be something outside of that, but not any less important in the sense of what God says about keeping the law. What happens if you break one law? Judgment. Wrath. Condemnation. It only takes one miss. The thing is, is that I'm not sure... You know, the, the idea of sin was presented to me very early in my walk as the target of an archer shooting at the target. I think most of you probably heard that, that picture or seen that picture somehow. And, and on the target is just simply a bullseye. And then there's the target. You know, I'm used to the targets with the rings that you get fewer and fewer points. Uh, but this is just the idea of a... And your arrow has either hit the bullseye or it's missed. And it didn't matter whether it was a half an inch or if you were an archer like myself and missed the whole target and hit something out in the woods. Uh, it doesn't matter what you know the miss is. It's a miss. And as a result, it's less than what God demands. And he says, you must be holy as I am holy. Therefore, you can't have, you can't, we can't interact with each other. You need an intervention. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a picture of that intervention in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. Loosen it, weaken it in any way. Make light of it. Make it sound like this isn't so important. I, I came this close, so I'm really okay. I'm pretty good. In fact, you know, that was my what I call my B.C. days. That was my B.C. attitude. If there is a heaven... I'm by far not the worst guy around. I stand as good a chance as anybody. Because I realize that nobody stands a chance without the blood of Christ. I didn't have that understanding. So, Jesus is basically saying, here's the law, here's its intent. Uh, teach it with integrity. And if you're failing to do that, if you're making, relaxing it in any way to, to get by, to, to, to you know, change the way it, it's, it, it's stated, then you are less than what it needs to be in the sense of a, you need to be in the sense of a teacher. It, it, it impedes the ability to be in a right standing with God if you don't have the law taught with integrity. The idea of sanctification, of, of right living, uh, you know, set apart for God, if we don't read the Word and see what that means, then how are we going to know 
what it is that we are to do and, and how to do it. So the integrity of teaching the law was important to Jesus. So none of the law is going to pass away. The integrity of teaching it is important to him. And then he goes on to say, uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven, which I, this is again is that statement that would just so upset those Pharisees and scribes. To enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, again, if you go and read the, the woes in, 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 in uh, chapter 23, uh, you'll see what, what he's talking about in, a, in greater detail. But even some of the things he talks about here in Matthew in chapter 6, uh, we'll take a quick look at, uh, does the same thing. But one of the woes, and I, I, want, I want to look at it specifically, is he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. This you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, they, they held up the exterior things of, of, of doing the law and said, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm doing it, I'm keeping it. And they, they emphasized those things. But the things that were really matters of the heart, they were, they were really, in some cases, very cold on. They didn't treat... Widows and orphans, the way the Scripture told them to. They, they, they didn't do the things of, of, of the heart that God wanted them to do. And so, the outward appearance was what they were emphasizing. As a result, all the people that they're teaching, uh, they, you know, they're looking at it and saying, that's what it means to be right with God, or that's what it means to be you know, the following after God, or the Pharisees and the scribes. So, we're, we're looking up to them, and so... We're, we're basically thinking in the terms of these are the guys that have done it. You know, they're the ones to be looking up to. And uh, look at some of the things that Jesus addresses here in chapter 6 very quickly. Uh, he says in chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from their Father who is in heaven. Thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. They, they literally went with fanfare to give out. There was one uh, talk uh, that I recall in, in my Old Testament studies class that, uh, that talking about the, the practice of the Pharisees, which was relatively recent in the Hebrew histories, but, but was to carry a little thing that had... They, they, they made small their change. And, and so they could make it look like they were, you know, the sound of it hitting the ground and all this kind of stuff. You know, big fanfare about their generosity. And yet they were, they were charging, overcharging widows and, and, and taking their property and different things like that. It was just so inconsistent with, with what God's Word would say to do. Uh, he says also, when you pray, verse 5 of chapter 6, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. They took the lead. They wanted to look. We're the we, we can pray, and and not only did they pray, but they would you know in a sense of praying with that eloquent, almost poetic style. I recall one guy, and he by no means was his intent. Believe me, this man I knew personally, but. He had the most beautiful, and when I say prayer language, I'm not talking Pentecostal at this point. Uh, when he, he, he said, you know, he, he just had almost in the King James prayer language. 
It just flowed. And after, after uh, uh, he was done praying, normally uh, nobody else would pray because it was kind of like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> and he didn't mean that to happen. It was just the way he learned. You remember Dan? <laughs> and, uh, and it was, uh, but it, he wasn't intending to do that. They, these guys not only would do that, but stand up in the, in the, in the, and, and to pray and, and, and even on the street corners to pray. And so they were drawing attention to themselves. And, and one more point he makes in, in, uh, uh, about fasting in Matthew. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. They made sure that you knew that they were fasting. We're holy, remember? You know, we're, 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 we're the ones that are showing you what it is to be right with God. Look, we're praying, we're fasting, we're generous. And yet they weren't following God from the heart. They were just doing these exterior things for the, really for, for the uh, praise of man. Jesus was basically saying here that His teachings what he was going to be sharing, these would be the standards. Not what you have heard from the Pharisees, not what you have heard from the scribes, but what I am going to share with you, what I am going to teach you. These are the things of God. By the way, he had already started that very much so in the Beatitudes because that's not the type of person you would have seen in the Pharisees. For the average person of Jesus' time hearing these things, they'd have been blown away. The scribes, the Pharisees, they're the standard to measure by. How do we stand a chance? If they don't stand a chance, how do we stand a chance? But you understand, you've got to understand the, Messiah, the, 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 the scribes, the Pharisees, the very nature of the Messiah they misunderstood. The purpose of the law, they actually misunderstood. And as a result, they, they were not teaching accurately the things of God. But from the, from the, the person looking at them and, and, and having heard them for generations, how could one exceed their works? Well, that was the whole point. It has nothing to do with the works. Go back to the Beatitudes and look once again at the, the list of things. These aren't things of works. It's things of brokenness. It kind of reflects of Psalm 51 where, where, where it's very clear that, that David looks out and says, it's not the sacrifices that it brings, but it's a broken heart that you're looking for, a heart that's broken over sin. And that's where Jesus points out in the Beatitudes, uh, if you want to go back to verse 3, for instance, of Matthew chapter 5, where it says... You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. The idea, again, of one who's recognizing, I, I don't have anything to stand on when it becomes, when I come before the throne of God. That wasn't something the Pharisees were teaching. In fact, they were looking at, we stand before the throne of God, look at us. Jesus says, no, the person that's really coming to know the the, 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 to be no God who's wanting to be in the kingdom of, of heaven. He is one who is broken. He's poor in spirit. He, he realizes he has nothing to bring to the throne of God for his salvation. As a result, he mourns over his sin. 
He doesn't sit here at the gate and debate, well, I haven't done that one, I haven't done that one, I haven't done that. Think of the guy who was praying when, when the, the uh, tax collector was, was next to him. He's saying, oh, God, thank you for making me who I am and not like him. And the tax collector was over there praying, broken and poor in spirit. Jesus says, Who, which one walks away in, 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 in God's grace in a sense of, of, of relationship? It's the tax collector. Blessed are those who mourn, who are, are broken over their sin. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The blessed are the meek or the humble in the sense of realizing I can't do it, only God can. And they run to God and accept what He does to bring them into a relationship. They realize it's His work, not theirs, that saves them. And uh, as a result, you hunger and you thirst after His righteousness. And then he, you know, and the, the Pharisees would say, well, that's what we do. We, we, we do that part. You know? But then he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, those who have a compassionate heart for those who are broken, for those who need help, for those who are, 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 are you know, grieving and, 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 and wounded. Blessed are the pure in heart and blessed are the peacemakers. All of these things leading to the idea, as I was thinking, of poor, born in, to be poor in spirit, to, to mourn over your sins, to be humble in the sense of, of, of realizing that it's God and God alone that, 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 that brings your salvation. It's, the idea is that's what makes you right with God. As a result, there's a transformation that begins, a process of sanctification that begins to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And it comes out in your behavior as to how you interrelate with people. Here we are again. Seek first the kingdom of God. Hunger and thirst after God, His righteousness, His holiness. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the idea is, is that that will start a transformation in you where you love the people the, to, to love your neighbor as yourself. What we've shared already last week, you will become the salt and the light of the world. That is what Jesus was trying to put together as a picture of what His church would be. Not an arrogant, puffy group of people, but a humble group of people that realized that only because of God and His mercy do I, do I walk in grace, do I walk in salvation. Only by His mercy am I in the kingdom of heaven. It's by no works of my own, but His work that accomplishes it. His church, His body, His bride. There's a scripture also at the end of Matthew that says, uh, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I, again, you, you, you realize that idea of how can I possibly be that? Well, there's only one way. Literally, only one way. There is no multiplicity of ways. There's not a whole bunch of answers. There's not a debate on the steps of the synagogue. It's, it's only one way. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Period. Through what God was pointing to all through the sacrifices, who was tutoring, teaching, trying to get them to see what was going to be needed and then bringing it about. That's the only process, one name under which you may be saved. You know, that idea of being holy because, you know, because God is holy comes through Christ and Christ alone. My pages don't want to come apart there.
the idea of what Christ has done for us. To rest in the work of Jesus Christ. To realize it's not our works, but His that saves us. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews states, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And also in the book of Hebrews, next chapter, verse chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus is, is the, the, the one who has brought us into the presence of God. And the, and the beautiful picture is, is that He's taken us right into the Holy of Holies through His his sacrifice. We actually approach the throne of God going back to Hebrews chapter 4 with a confidence. And not a confidence to ask Him for just anything you want, or, or you know, but, but with a confidence of, of resting in His mercy and His grace and His love. Knowing that, that there is now no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus. What Jesus was, was in, in the way I look at it here, was trying to do was to set the stage for all that He was going to bring to the table in His teaching. He was not coming as the Pharisees. He was not coming as the scribes. And it's an amazing thing. They listened to Him teach and they walked away. Those who were catching a glimpse of where He was going were saying, man, this guy teaches with authority we've never heard before. Jesus you know, didn't lightly put anything. He didn't say, for instance, where where he teaches. He says to be perfect. You know, uh, uh, you know, in uh, uh, the last verse again of of, of of chapter five. Therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He didn't mean that as a uh, wishful thought or as kind of a standard that you hope for an ideal. He meant it literally. The only way you approach the throne of God is in, is, is in His perfection. How can you do that? Through His Word, what He's revealed of Himself up to the point that you are, and now ultimately pointing to 
the cross. So basically, if you've confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you confessed as Romans put it with your mouth, and you believed in your heart, Jesus is the Son of God. God in the flesh and all that that entails. Then you're saved. Not because of what you have done, but because of what He has done. You want to understand the holiness of of God and and, and His wrath in the sense of of what comes about when his, His holiness is rejected? Read the Scriptures. It's clear. From the beginning to the end. Go to the end of Revelation. See how it ends. Uh, yes, at the very end, new heaven and new earth, but just before that, the things that happen and His wrath and His judgment that is poured out on all who have rejected His, his way, his, his salvation. Every time we share in communion, we're sharing a sense of thanksgiving. Lord, thank You for doing what I could not do. Admitting over and over again, and, 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 and I don't think it's a bad thing to admit on a daily basis in your private uh, prayers and, and worship is to say, Lord, I was helplessly, hopelessly lost, but You intervened. You opened my eyes. You saved my soul. Thank You. Lord, thank You for the reality that even as I am still imperfect, even as I still walk in this fallen flesh, as I still find myself serving my flesh instead of my spirit, even though the desire is to serve the spirit. Lord, as I find these things happening with me, thank you so much that I can come to you as you convict me of my sins over and over again as you convict me of my sins that I can rest with assurance that you are faithful and you will forgive me. We have that as a promise. And not to excuse us to just turn around and say, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do this and then I'll ask for forgiveness. That's not a heart of, 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 of brokenness. The heart of brokenness is, is one that says, I, I, I'm, I mourn over what I have done. Thank you, Lord, for convicting me. Cause me to grow past this. Cause this to be something that is gone in my life. And, and it doesn't mean that we won't battle sin, and some of it habitual sin. But it's the attitude that we have about it. You know, there's some that would take, a, a again, a relaxed view and say, hey, we're only human. I mean, heck, we're stuck in the fallen flesh. What do you expect? We're only human. Beatitudes are an ideal. The Sermon on the Mount is an ideal. No, it's a manifesto declaring who Christ is and what, what is required of us. And if we do anything less with it, we are relaxing it. And he says, don't do that. So as we come to the table, we lift his word up, his God-breathed word up. We say, thank you for your word that leads us. Thank you for your word that guides us. Thank you for your, your word that as we come into a relationship with you, tells us what it is to be holy. Cause us, Lord, to desire that, to hunger and thirst after your righteousness. And communion is a good place to do that. So uh, I ask the ushers to come to pass the uh, communion out. Hold it until we've all been saved. We'll share together.
sedikit
we've been rescued through His love, through His work, through His cross. The debt is paid. It is finished. It is paid in full. All of that rests in what Christ has done for us. It's an amazing thing to think this. How it all comes together. It's, it, it, it's to know that God loves us. I pray this morning that, that we all here today are resting in His grace. If there would be anybody here today that's not, be sure you talk to to me or to someone you know here uh, to make sure that uh, you can say with confidence in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation in me because I'm in Christ Jesus. And Jesus put all this together in such a way that even before it occurs, He gives them the picture. His body that would be put on the cross. He said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you share in this, do it in remembrance of me. In the cup, I have in my mind's eye a picture of him holding it up and saying, this is the blood poured out. Poured out to purchase the covenant. The covenant of grace fulfill that picture of the sacrifice. The one and only, the the final, no more necessary. It is finished sacrifice. He asked us as often as we would do this, to do it in remembrance of Him until He comes again. Father, once again we come to You with grateful hearts. Words of thanksgiving and praise, but also a sense of brokenness, realizing that You and You alone are the one worthy to look at in the sense of our salvation. And so, Lord, we would ask that You would continue to convict us of those things that are missing the mark, not to, to make light of things that, oh, well, we're almost there, we, we, we've done that right, or we've done that close to right. Uh, not to rest in any of that, but to realize, Lord, that any point we miss the mark, we miss your holiness. If it weren't for your grace, if it weren't for your mercy, if it weren't for your words, it is finished. We would be in serious, serious trouble. That we would be looking ahead to the wrath instead of eternal life in view. Thank you for your mercy, your love, your grace. In Jesus' name.